an old Scottish song about Bonnie Prince Charlie fleeing to the Isle of Skye to evade British troops after his defeat at the Battle of Culloden. And now this song is actually sung to the boat that he that Charlie was riding and, and urges the boat to be speedy to, to help him escape as it has to carry the lad that's born to be king. And the singers need Prince Charlie to escape safely because their defeat has left their houses burned, left them in exile, left a string of death. But they hold out hope because they could sing that Charlie will come again. You know, I think the striking thing about this story is how a man who was born to be king must retreat and be protected by his followers. So, I mean, it, it's kind of a common theme across stories like this. Though, so, so many stories across the centuries plant a future hope in in the return of a, a good and strong king who will overturn the present oppressors. But we have in this account a, a story of this king that actually leaves his followers as he fled from those opponents who would imminently subdue him despite how he was born to be king and his arrival was supposed to be the decisive event of rescue. So my point is that that if a story about a, a destined king will be one that actually instills any hope, the king cannot be on the run but must have the power to storm his enemy's kingdom and set his people free. Christians should know that Jesus Christ is that king, which is not a superficial claim, but but a reality about God's plan to rule his people through the king who has saved them. Okay, so so last week we thought about the incarnation of God's Son and how the eternal Son became a man for our salvation. With that in mind, we should consider the roles that he played, God's Son played in his earthly ministry. So, so we can think about this this way. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 23, asked, what offices, what roles, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer is that Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And so today we're going to think about Christ's kingly ministry. And our catechism again explains that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. And Romans 1, the first four verses, shed some specific insight on Jesus' kingship by showing how God's eternal Son came to earth to fulfill God's promises about an eternal king and that he earned this kingship 
by overcoming death for us. So the main point is that Christ's resurrection installed him as the eternal king of salvation. Christ's resurrection installed him as the eternal king of salvation. We're going to think about this in three points. The promised king, the protecting king, and the providing king. So first, the promised king. If if we turn back to our, our text, so have your Bible open, and we look at Romans 1, Paul outlined some specific points about how Christ is our king. Now, maybe you remember last week, if you can remember that back that far, when we saw how God's Son is the Creator God. And of course, the Creator is kind of automatically king of the universe. And so, maybe you're wondering right now why there needs to be any further discussion. If Christ is the Creator, He's one of the persons of the Trinity, why do we need to talk any any more about His kingship? And the answer is that Christ is not just our king as God, but he's also our king in in another way as our savior, which Paul explored in the verses before us. So let's read them together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, okay, we can note a few quick things to to get us in to this material leading up to the importance of Christ's kingship. So first quick thing, Paul was Christ's servant as an apostle of God's gospel. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Second, this gospel was promised through the prophets and written in the scripture, which means the gospel itself was revealed throughout our Old Testament scriptures. The, the gospel didn't fall out of the sky in the New Testament, but had been announced throughout God's history of saving his people. Now third, this gospel announced in the scriptures is about God's son, which is where we have to slow down and explore the rest of the points in this text. So, so verse 3 says that the gospel was about God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh. This point about God's son, who, who is, who is the gospel's heart, links to our concern about Christ's kingship. So David, we, we've read about David, right, in 2 Samuel 7, and David was Israel's premier monarch. He was no ordinary king in the history of Israel. And 2 Samuel 7 tells us that God promised 
that David would have an heir who would reign over God's people forever. We can think back to verses 13 and 14. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And and God's promise there in that text sounded the promise that we sang about in Psalm 2-7, that this, this hope from Psalm 2-7 about the coronation of God's king. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, as this psalm was a conversation actually between this king and, and God, the verse is not about the king's physical birth but about God appointing his son as king. We can bring this together by noting how God promised that David's royal heir would be his son. But it's most fitting in light of that, that God's own divine son would come as a man, taking his human nature from someone in David's line and fulfill in a surprisingly heightened way that promise that David's eternal heir would be God's son. And so we see that Jesus was David's seed, as Romans 1 describes him, only according to the flesh. So meaning in regards to his humanity. And that qualification marks for us that Jesus was something more than his humanity. We, in our humanity, we have a body, a mind, a soul, and that is our humanity, and that that's all we are, though. We're just human. But Jesus, we know, is God's divine Son who existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit, but He took on humanity. And now, even though Jesus was the total fulfillment of of God's promise to David about a kingly heir, He was still also God's own divine son. And verse 4 tells us that Jesus' resurrection announced that he is the son of God in power. Now, this verse says that the Davidic heir to the throne was declared, announced, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So, when Jesus rose from the grave, it made known, it revealed, it declared that He was God's Son in power. Okay, so I've, I've put a lot of emphasis as I've read, uh, and even just now, on this little phrase, in power. Because it's crucial. And it shows us this verse is not 
definitely not about Jesus transitioning from being a mere human to being God's son. That would be significant heresy. And nor is it about, <clears throat> nor is it about people finding out that Jesus is God's son. Although the resurrection certainly clarified that in a new way for a lot of people. Instead, this verse teaches that whereas Jesus had previously been and in an estate of humiliation, as he bore the curse and miseries of our sin, now Jesus has entered his reign of exaltation. Jesus no longer endures weakness as his resurrection announces that he is God's son in power. Which is exactly, maybe unsurprisingly, how our larger catechism, 52, quotes this verse. Christ defeated death and the devil and reigns in grace. Christ is the promised king who saves God's people. Which brings us to our second point, the protecting king. Okay, we, so what we've done so far is, is thought about how Christ was God's eternal son who came to earth as a man in David's lineage to fulfill God's promises to David about an eternal king. And, and we've thought about how Jesus' resurrection announced him, crowned him to be God's son who is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. But now, obviously, we have to think about what are the implications of that for us in our lives. So I I think that one of the biggest plagues for God's people today is the weight of difficulty that hangs over our lives. Whether that be because of worldly stress that you have, personal anxieties, or difficult events of loss or, or trouble. For some reason, we can ask in those seasons of trial, where is God? When things get bad, we tend to doubt either that God has control or think that God has left us. And I pose that when things are hard, that's when Christians need Christ's kingship the most. So we, in the evening services, not that long ago, we worked through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And so the church in Thessalonica was under growing threat of, of persecution and when Paul wrote these two letters to them. And in Second Thessalonians, Paul refers to Christ 23 times. And what I think is interesting here is that 22 of these 23 times, Paul calls Jesus Lord. So the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, Lord Jesus. Some combination of his names, titles, but almost all of them he's 
highlighting the fact that he's the Lord. And the reason, it's obvious, isn't it? These Christians under threat of persecution and in fear about the future, they need to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The, the sovereign, the king with full dominion. And whether it's because of our sinfulness or our fragility, we seem to think that when we are struggling, God must be struggling. But the fact is that even when things are hardest, Christ still reigns and reigns for you. I would challenge you to think about today that sometimes your troubles are even a profound mark of God's love for you. So I've been doing my readings in the Gospel of John this week, and this always strikes me when I come to John chapter 11. So Mary and Martha send to Jesus to tell him that their brother Lazarus is dying. And now we know, because we've read the whole story, Jesus does go to Lazarus. Lazarus has died, but Jesus raises him from the grave, which is what these sisters, to some degree or other, hoped he would do, that he would save Lazarus, and he does. There's a striking part of this story, though, in verses 5 and 6, which says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The striking thing here is this little word, so. This verse tells us that Jesus loved his family, this family. So, therefore, because of this love, he waited. King Jesus, because he loved Lazarus, and this family, waited so that Lazarus would die. We know that the story ended well, but we cannot jump over, especially too quickly, how death is difficult, and this was traumatic for this family. And yet this happened because Jesus loved them. The trial brought God glory and brought them to deeper faith and joy in Jesus. But this event of death was still, no doubt, difficult. And I think that there's no reason why we should think other than that Jesus deals with us in similar ways. Things may be difficult, but Christ is ruling over us in that situation 
in our favor because He loves us. We cannot let suffering make us think that Jesus is not with us, ruling and defending us. We see that even in Jesus' own life. As Jesus went to the cross, his own people put him on trial with a a pagan governor. And that governor questioned Jesus in the lead-up to crucifying him and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, "You, You have said it. But the, but the ultimate answer, his response as he strides toward his own death is, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm in charge of all the things that you can imagine, Pilate. But the outward comfort of our lives, as we see exemplified even in King Jesus, the outward comfort of our lives is not the mark of Jesus' kingship. And this is one of the reasons why I really pause about some causes of cultural endeavors, reclaiming the culture so that we can be more comfortable, so that we can leave our legacy in music and the arts, is a quest for glory. But Jesus says, glory is for the future. My people are people who follow me even in my suffering. Jesus himself endured suffering despite being himself the king and did so because God's glory was the greater purpose of his reign so that that he could buy a people for himself, bring them to faith, and reign one day as their God over the new creation. We cannot think that Jesus is is weak even when we are at our weakest. He is our great and mighty King, standing for our sake in heaven to defend our cause. Christ is the protecting King who rules and defends his people. That brings us to our last point, the providing King. Okay, so... Right. We, we've thought about how Jesus fulfills God's promises to provide an eternal king for his people. And we've seen how even in our hardest moments, we should not doubt that Christ is still our king. And now I want to think about how Jesus being our king provides us with hope. That's the provision I'm trying to highlight. So in Christ's present reign. God's kingdom is active to destroy the powers of death and the devil. We see this point in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, that describe what happens after Christ's return at the last day. So, but also what happens until then. And these verses say, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power because he must reign until 
He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ reigns until he destroys all of his enemies. And the last one is death. He he will not stop using the full force of his kingly reign until he raises every last Christian from the grave in a glorified body forever. Our king, despite what we thought about at the beginning, our king is not on the run. He is not fleeing. He will come again. But our king right now is on the war path against death, hell, and sin. He has decimated death's power by bearing the curse of your sin as the Father poured out his full wrath on Jesus Christ at the cross. Jesus rose from the grave in coronation to declare to the world that he is God's son in power. He ascended into heaven to reign until he has smashed every last opponent right now, bring all of his and our enemies. So we see Jesus' kingship is not some abstract idea over there. But it is the very ground of our hope. Christian hope is not simply a a positive outlook for the future, but it is a firm knowledge that we are set right presently with the triune God and will live with our Lord in peace for eternity when he returns to set the world right. Christ is the fighting king who gives hope. In further application of that, though, I want to add that Jesus' kingship produces hope, but hope promotes evangelism. And I think that we should, as we reflect on that, this is how we should be praying that God will help us serve him this week. And here, here's the, the evidence of that. Most Christians are going to know something about the Great Commission. Go make disciples. But maybe you've never noticed that Jesus actually opened the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28 by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, go because of my authority and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' sovereignty in things is the reason why we go make disciples. And one way that he conquers all of his and our enemies is by making Christians. By subduing unbelievers to himself, by bringing them to faith. And so it's fitting to ask right here, then are you Jesus' disciple? 
Are you one of his subjects that has bowed the knee to him in faith? Because if not, then all of the hope loaded into Christ's kingship that we've thought about here is not good news for you right now. Jesus will return to judge the world, and that day will be one of great calamity for those who still remain an enemy of Christ. But if you would place your trust in Jesus as Savior, then he would give to you the right to become a child of God. And he would prepare a place for you even now in his kingdom. And so the good news is that Jesus is, as we're about to sing, the high king of heaven, whose victory is one who should remain always our enduring and sustaining vision as he ensures that all who belong to him will join him in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that we serve a merciful king, that we do not belong to a tyrant. We do not belong to a king who rules for himself, but one who died to create a kingdom, one, a king who would die to buy a people to be his subjects. He could rule with the rod of iron, but he rules with the cross in grace. He offers us a place where we can find mercy, where we can be subdued to him, not by threat and force, but by taking hold of this king in trust to save us. And we pray that all here would do that and those who have would find immense courage assurance, help in belonging to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.